0: Good evening, we are in Parsha's Toldos We're studying Parsha's Toldos from the Rebbe's teaching from The Bar Malchus, uh, 5752, Tavshid Nun Base 1991-92 It's actually this week's Parsha, Is my Bar Mitzvah Parsha Actually it was Bar Mitzvah. uh Really? Yeah, Parsha's Toldos, November 19th, 1990 1990, wow, 1990. Yeah Mm-hmm. So I think you're younger than my daughter, actually. Yeah? yeah. It could be. Yeah. What year was she born? I'm born wow. in 77. 77, you were born. Oh, no, she was born she was... 72? I don't remember. I think 72, yeah. Okay, 72. 72. Uh, 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 she's a little older than me. Yeah. She got me by five years. Five years, wow. So, Parsha's Todos is... um. Again, it's my bar mitzvah parsha. Very interesting parsha, and we're studying the rebbe's of our the Revis teachings on the parsha from 1992, two years after my or a year after my bar mitzvah, really 91, 92. Parsha's todos. So parsha's todos is a fascinating parsha where it begins to this, uses the word todos, which is also used in the parsha of Noah. So Noah begins with these are the todos of Noah, and parsha's todos. Also begins with the toldos of, well, what does toldos mean? You need to know that, right? So toldos means the generations. Toldos Yitzchak versus toldos Noah. Toldos means these are the generations. These are the offshoots. These are the generations that are coming out from these, these great people. So the Parsha of Noah consists of the contents and the stories of Noah's life. And the story of Toldos, of Yitzchak, is really discussing his offspring, who are Yaakov and esau Yaakov and esau famously are the two twins that were wrestling in Rivka's, in Rebecca's stomach. And that Yaakov went on to be the progenitor of the Jewish people. And Esauv was that progenitor of the Roman Western nations. And clearly they were at odds. And in this week's Parsha, we hear about their encounter between Yaakov and Esau after many years. After Yaakov purchased at first and then took Esau's birthright, his blessing from his father, on his deathbed. And then Yaakov and Esau coming together to try and reconcile after many, many years. 21 years, I believe, later in this week's Parsha. So the Rebbe harps on the word "todos." These are the generations of, the generations of, that there's a difference between Noah and the generations of Yitzchak. But even more, there's a difference between Noah and Toldos of the generations before the Torah was given, and the Toldos, the generations that were after the Torah was given. The Torah was given on Mount Sinai. And the beginning in preparation for the giving of the Torah was the generation of Abraham, the first Jew, the first monotheist. He believed in God, and he paved the way for heaven and earth to come together on Sinai and connect, specifically by the bris milah, the circumcision, which we mentioned a few weeks ago, how that was an essential connection with the first touch between spiritual and material in the physical world, and that culminated eventually with the giving of the Torah on Sinai. And Noah, in his time, even predated the Jewish people. Noah was not Jewish per se. It took generations later for Abraham to come and bring about the Jewish people and eventually pave the way for the giving of the Torah generations later. So there's an interesting concept. that It says that the Torah wasn't given in Abraham's time. The Torah wasn't given in Isaac's time, Yitzchak. The Torah was not given for... Centuries later. So why is it that we have the Jewish people and then we have a Torah and Mitzvahs? So there's a very interesting uh, teaching in Tanna Deveh at Eliyahu, that there are two entities that existed beyond time and space. Two things that are not created in the normal way we view creation. Normally we view creation as the intersection of time and space. There's linear time, there's multidimensional space, and we define our existence by those two measures, those two rubrics of what defines physicality. It's time and space, even scientists, quantum mechanics, physics. They define the world that way. But we know from this mystical teaching that there are two things that came before the world, sort of say. And he says over there, I don't know which one came first but I know there was two. And one of them is the Jewish people, and the other is the Torah. The verse says, command the children of Israel, speak to the children of Israel. I say that Israel came first, and the precedence is principally qualitative, (coughs) loftiness to the Jewish people over that of Torah. And then the loftiness, the qualitative, the quality of a Jew, seems to there be superseding the Torah itself. In order for the loftiness of a Jew to be expressed, there needs to be an observant of Torah. Right? What good is it being a chosen people if you're not chosen for something? You can be a chosen person. But what, you're superior somehow? You're not superior unless you behave superior. You're not amazing person unless you
1: are an amazing person.
0: That's the problem. No more. No more what? There's no such thing as an amazing person. If you, be, you behave, not in this country, it's over. Why do you say America's area. gone? No, really. I'm very spiritual and, and I say what's going on is horrendous. Right, but no what se- about the con- here? We're talking about the context specifically yeah, of a Jew of a Jew right. of a, specifically of a Jew. But they're trying to knock us out. Okay, there's a lot of more anti-Semitism than there's ever been before. Is there sure. such a thing as a devil? That's what they say, but I think there is. Mm-hmm. That's what we say, but I'm starting to think that there is. Lucifer. So in Judaism, we don't, we don't endorse such things. Okay, so you don't believe in it, so don't, you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> it's one of those things that we understand that there is a, a, a special quality of a Jewish person that even transcends the Torah. But when we, a Jew observes the Torah, when a Jewish person decides what I do on Friday night is I light Shabbat candles, what I put in my mouth matters, what I eat matters, the way I live matters has a value. Inherently, we see the preeminence of being a Jewish person. But a Jewish person who who abdicates their responsibilities who gives yeah. up and and relinquishes it, says, I don't care, yeah. then what right do they have to be called anything special? Like, what's the, what's the nature of that individual? That's the question we're asking here. The question is, is that if the Jewish people came first, but yet, as Jewish people, the observance of Torah brings out our special nature, how can we say that the Jewish person has preeminence in the first place? Meaning to say, if the the Torah and its observance shows our qualities, then you might say the Torah could be first. But really, in the teaching, it says that the Jewish people came first. So in that, we'll explain in a parable, in a parable. So there's a king who has many sons in his home, and he has an elderly servant who tutors them in ways of finesse, in acts of kindness, of acts of goodness, how to carry yourself with dignity and grace and this servant, this old servant, just teaches the boys, the young princes, the young kings, young sons, says this is how you conduct yourself as a prince, this is how you carry yourself, this is what dignity is, this is what our values are, and he educates them, who's higher, the prince or the man who taught them the values? The answer is the prince, obviously. The prince is the son of the king. Yes, without the elderly man, the elderly servant of the king, teaching them the right way to behave, they would not know the values. They would not know their import. They wouldn't know how to carry themselves in a princely way. But yet, their preeminent quality is essential, and that supersedes his preeminent quality. He's a servant, they're a prince. Yes, it took him to educate them. It took him to guide them. But they have an eminent quality that he merely just took out. He brought out of them. He, he extrapolated the, the wonderful qualities of the king, the king's values in his sons through this man. So the same thing is by Torah. The pivot, the linchpin that causes that a Jew to go from one end of the spectrum to another end of the spectrum is the Torah. The Torah is what gives us that preeminent quality, that that brings out our preeminent quality. The Torah is the old servant of the king. The king employs him, the king uses him, the king gives a, him his, his mission, his way of education, his methodology, his curriculum, but he himself is no higher than the sun. The sun is higher. He's there just to bring it out. He's there to educate. He's there to guide. He's there to show the prince of who he, how he should be conducted. And so, same thing is with Hashem. God has a Torah, and God gave the Torah to the Jewish people to bring out our qualities as princes and princesses, as, as kings and queens among men, to show that we have a value system, we have a, a, a responsibility, we have a privileged life, we have a special directive, as we are as Jews, that is unique that is princely, that is royalty, that has a certain grace, That is a certain morality, a certain compassion, a certain kindness that we imbue, that we, that we are imbued with, that is merely brought out when we decide to observe Torah mitzvahs. When we decide to study Torah mentally, understand it, pray with it, use our hearts, our energy, and use our hands and deeds and actions that are expressive of the values and the mitzvahs of the Torah that brings it out. So we understand that metaphor, the metaphor of the the old man. So the loftiness of the Jewish people is brought out by the Torah. It becomes a reality and is revealed. It says in the Zohar, in Kabbalah, the Jewish people and God are one. That even before (laughs) a Jew performs Torah and Mitzvahs, before they have their ways of finesse and their character development, they are already one with the king, they are already one with God. The analogy, a king who has sons, his love for them is from the essence. A king loves his princes, his boys, his children, before they take on the role of prince or king, eventually, after him. He loves them no matter what. He essentially loves them because they're his sons, they're his children, they're his daughters, whoever it is. Even if they don't have fine character traits, even if they're not as great as him, he still loves them unconditionally. He never would relinquish them. He still values them as children and as princes and princesses. Because he sees their preeminence, their royal blood. They're carrying forth the mission of the king. Even if they don't do it to the best of their, the way his standards are. And actually when the children, the princes, have acquired the fine ways and the acts of goodness, then he loves them out of his own understanding. It's not unconditional. The father's essence is less apparent. When your child is a good kid, Mm -hmm. and you say, you're such a good child, thank you so much for being you, I'm so proud of you, you give me so much nachas, I'm proud of you, because of what you've done, that covers over the essential love of a parent to a child. The essential love is when the kid is not behaving the right way, and you still love them or when it takes work to deep dive into their own life and to help them, to correct them, to raise them, to engage with them in uncomfortable situations, that's when the unconditional love of the parent shines forth. Because if you looked at it, if you were a foreigner, if you were an alien that came down off a planet and saw what a parent does for their child, you'd say, well, this is insane. It makes no sense for their own survival, for their own pleasure, for their own entertainment, for their own self-betterment, Having this child and loving them unconditionally through uncomfortable situations and, and the rigors of, of child rearing looks like it's nonsensical. It doesn't make any sense. It's not for the person's betterment. We get, we go, we get gray and we lose money and we, spend, we, we lose all of our resources on our children. But we do so joyfully and happily because unconditionally we love our children. We're willing to give them everything. We're willing to put them in a position to succeed. So therefore, when we relate to our children in times of hardship, when it makes the least sense, that's when you see the unconditional love of parent to child. But when the child gets 100 on the test and is a good person and shares their snack with their brother or sister and they do all the good stuff there is and they're respectful of mommy and daddy, then we only love them because it makes sense to love them course we love them then what's the question but that conceals the essence you can just say oh well there's a there's a therefore you did this so therefore i feel and that makes sense that's rational but the essential love is one of connection beyond acquired qualities beyond character traits you know i have 10 kids each one's a totally different. have? Oh, yeah. Thank God. Oh, that's wonderful. Each one's a totally different universe unto themselves. They're all different. They look similar in a lot of ways. They behave they similar in a lot of ways, similar. and they have their own Kraviski yeah. appearance. But they, they believe me, they all have their own. They're all a different universe, a different planet going around. <laughs> they're all different. My mother had five kids. Beautiful. And she said, "We were all different." She says. The five fingers in your hand—they're all different. Kids. Ah, very She's good. Like, I like that. all of them. Are different. I have ten. I have ten. And I got ten, ten fingers too. Yeah, <laughs> except some of them look the same, right? The middle fingers, two middle yeah. fingers, right? They all look—they dis- all look different, and they all behave differently. All their own. They have their own characters. Characters. Amazing stuff. But they look alike. My kids. Yeah, they matter. carry the genes a little bit, yeah. So but they still have the genes. Je- still right, right. Right. Yeah. Amazing. That's it. So what do you what do you see? It says like you know like. So when one of my children is up and one of my children, God forbid' down, do I love the one who's up more than I love the one who's down? No, of course I want to lift the other one up to the level of higher and I want to make sure the other one's sustaining their level and I do so because I love them unconditionally. I don't there's no favorites there's no better. And even if there is, that's based on a very low standard of like who I am to like children. Well, maybe someone you get along better with or better. Okay, but that's a that's lower different. standard that's but a the lower love standard. Is but the Love's love is unconditional people, yeah. right exactly. So we understand that this is the relationship between a Jew and God. Hashem loves us before you ever had a bris. A baby boy gets a bris at eight days before a girl gets her name at the Torah, which could be that day she's born. She's showing a little preeminence of the girl over the boy. girl doesn't have to wait eight days to get her soul conduit called a name. And you see that a Jew's relationship with God is, transcends mitzvahs transcends the qualities that are expressed through Torah. And so we see that the essence of the soul is beyond revelation and that when the revelation of the soul is even suppressed, is even not there, and you feel like the la- there's a lack of connection of soul to existence, it doesn't detract from the essence. And even the sometimes... The avenues of revelation can contain the expansiveness of the essence. But since the essence has no limitations, it can't stay concealed for very long and eventually filters into a revealed state. And the true state eventually comes about when it's there's an openness of revelation. So the Torah affords us that pathway of revelation of the soul. I was speaking to somebody today I do counseling sessions. And I was speaking to someone today. What kind of counseling? Personal. personal. Really? Personal. Yeah, personal. Oh, I never like knew that. Therapy but not clinical, you know. I'm a, as a rabbi. Oh. I do one on one sessions, I do marriage counseling, I do teenagers, I do personal people, like, like life life oh. coaching if you want to call it that today. It life used to be called coaching, yeah. used to be called being a rabbi. <laughs> now they call it life coaching. Now they but it's uh, like personal counseling with for people, you know. Meet once, you know, once a week, whenever a person wants. Once every two weeks, whatever it is. Sometimes twice a week, and uh, yeah. So, and we do uh, have families that have been in touch with me who don't live here anymore. They're still on Zoom, and we uh, Zoom counsel over Zoom, and it's uh, very beneficial. I gain a lot from it, also. It's my pleasure to do it. Absolutely. So, I was speaking to someone today, and we're speaking about a concept. Of this person wanted something. They want something and that thing was, not only was it not healthy for them and their children, but it was also against what the Torah says. And I said to her, you know, what makes sense to you and what you feel is not always what is preeminent. What is preeminent is your soul. I was like, when we put our best foot forward in life, we have to do it on the premise that we get blessings from above. Everything comes from above. As much as we see we can do our due diligence, we can put in our best foot forward, ultimately we realize that God is the one in control. God's in control. And the more we align our will with what God wants, what we want with what God wants, the more our will, God makes His will aligned with our will. The more He aligns it with us. So when we talk about How do we express our soul, soul's energy? The Torah gives us a clear blueprint for how our soul should be expressed. Ah, but I want this. I want to do the wrong thing. I want to do what I want to do because I feel a certain way. Eventually, it will not meet a good end. Mm -hmm. I guarantee. I guarantee. And I said to her, do you see what... And I traced the thread forward for her, her children. Children are young. I said we traced the thread forward. I said, when you when you reach the stage and after you make that decision, do you realize the ramifications of your children? And she really didn't think it through. She really didn't think it through. I hope she takes my advice. But usually I don't speak that much. But at the end when she said this, I had to say something. I had to like interject and just really like drive it home. And I think she was very thankful that I made that point. Because it's like as soon as we we do everything we can. And we're not met with success. And then the minute we take a step back or retreat or like just stop doing what we think and do what God wants, immediately the blessing fills in the gaps. A meeting of bless- well, you make it, it's almost like a vacuum that like you remove the, the barrier and you come in and you take in the godly energy into your life. So the Torah gives us the way in which we remove ourselves in a healthy way from a situation that allows the openness, it allows the revelation of the soul to come forth rather than what we think and feel. Selfish. Yeah, removing that selfish energy. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So there's an interesting concept that we're going to get to now that is, it's very refined. It's a hard concept. It's still hard for me to even conjure. The preeminence of the body Of a Jew. That our body is chosen by God. Perhaps more than the soul. The body is on loan. The commandments of the Torah, most of the mitzvahs in the Torah, are on the body. They're not on the soul level. When we think about the commandments of the Torah, think about what they are. The mitzvah of kosher. Is all about food, about eating for the body. The mitzvah of tefillin goes on the arm. The mitzvah of lighting Shabbat candles or Chanukah is coming up. Chanukah candles is with the physical body. There's very few mitzvahs that are purely spiritual. Like you might say, Shema Yisrael is, purely, is very, very purely spiritual. I mean, we need our physical lips to say the words. But it's meditative. It, there's a consciousness. There's an intention behind it. That is fully, wholeheartedly intellectual and spiritual in, and emotional in nature. Very spiritual. But the commandments of the Torah are not relevant to souls before a baby is born. And not relevant to souls after a person passes away. Meaning today the soul, before it comes down into a body, does not have to put on tefillin. Does not have to keep kosher. Doesn't eat, obviously. But it has no mitzvahs. But there's a soul. There is a soul. Absolutely. But only when it comes into a body does the Torah apply to it. Mm. After a person passes away, the Torah does not apply to that person anymore. The soul is eternal. It lasts forever. But it goes back to Hashem. It goes back to bask in the godly light. But is no longer responsible for mitzvahs or privileged to do them. In fact, it says in the Hallel prayers, the dead cannot praise your name, God. Only a physical body with a spiritual soul can praise God. One of the great songs, Lea mesim ya The dead cannot praise your name. We sing that, the Levites would sing that in the Holy Temple. Only a physical body with a spiritual soul invested in it is able to praise God. To such an extent, I'll give you an interesting custom, I don't know if it's a law, but it's more of a custom. When you go to visit a cemetery, a man should tuck in his sitsis. The tzitzes that he wears... Before going to the cemetery. Before going to the cemetery. Why? Great question. Because the sitsis represent the remembrance of the mitzvahs. Mm-hmm. The, if you add up all the knots and the strings in the four corners, and the word tzitzes in Hebrew, it equals 613. 613 oh. mitzvahs. Mm-hmm. So the reason why we wear the sitsis is you have five knots, and you have the four strings divided into um, four, uh, half, eight, your you have four corners, and if you add the word sitsis, the numerical equivalency, it equals 613. So the reason why a man wears a sitsis all day long is to remember the mitzvahs. We definitely wear them when we pray. we the big talis when we pray. But the sitsis that we wear all day are there to remind us constantly of God's presence. In fact, to such a degree that you're, you don't have to wear tzitzis at night, according to Jewish law. We do because we remember the mitzvahs, but it says, "When you see the Sitsis, you will be reminded of the mitzvahs." Literally, looking at the Sitsis brings into your consciousness the concept of remembrance. You begin to recall; it's like a visceral remembrance that goes on when a when a Jew sees Sitsis. and even if you look, like, you can't pinpoint it. It causes you to remember, to observe the mitzvahs. That's why when we say the Shema Yisrael. A man kisses the sitsis at that, those points where it says the word tzitzes in that time. And it says that those sits will remind us of the 613 commandments. So this that we put on that we wear tzitzes every day, constantly surrounded by the remembrance of mitzvahs. Then when we go to a cemetery, we tuck them into our pants, tuck them into our pocket, or cover them up, like a long jacket or whatever we're wearing, Why? Because you don't want to embarrass the dead. So the dead are no longer with soul and body. The body is holy, is resting in a holy place in the ground. It's a very holy, sanctified place. A a Jewish cemetery is a holy place. And the the dead are there, body. And the souls are not there. Or sometimes they're hovering if it's new. But usually the souls are are completely separate from the body. So we don't want to embarrass the dead by saying, ah, oh, I can do mitzvahs. Because the dead no longer can do mitzvahs. So we say that the body is the only thing that obligates a Jew to do mitzvahs. So we have to say the body comes from a higher place than the soul. Meaning to say, where do I express my greatness from? Often, like the immediate answer would be my soul. the the unconditional relationship I have with God. But when I say, where do I find the fullest expression of myself? It's from the body, which is like any religion says the opposite. Every other religion negates the body. Body is evil, pleasures of the flesh. They say all these things. They fast. They they abstain from marriage. They abstain from eating. They abstain from uh, physical pleasures. They wear simple clothing. A Jew does none of those things. Only on special certain occasions like Yom Kippur do we do such things. But generally speaking, a Jew is involved in the world. We eat, we sleep, we drink, we pay taxes, we exercise, we do physical stuff. We have physical lives. And those lives should be imbued with a very deep level of spirituality. But the point is to understand that the body comes from a loftier place than the soul. Down here it's expressed very differently. The body is seemingly sometimes an obstacle to our spiritual self. But that's not really, sh- in, in, a, in a holistic viewpoint, it should not be the case. But what if the body commits sin against the soul? On oh, other souls except for Do you, How do you repent of that sin? That's a great question. That's an excellent question. I get a very long-winded answer to that question. It's excellent. <laughs> so... the air, the answer is simply the preeminence of the soul over body as much as you realize the body is preeminent based on what we just learned. the job is to price the soul above body because it's easy for us to like live a life of the physical. It's hard to live a life of the spiritual like I think I gave the example I think last week or two weeks ago. When we said that a sadik, a righteous person, lives the life of the soul to the body. Like they're a, a spiritual being having physical experiences. We are physical beings that have moments of spiritual experiences. And so that corrupts us, sort of, say. The body can cause us to sin, yeah. to transgress. It's like almost like you have an amazing light source and then you put like a big cement block in front of it. That could be the our body, body something, yeah. yeah. It could be our body sometimes feels like that, like this like coarse material animal. Yeah. We're like, how do I get rid of this? But the best way to do it is first of all, push the soul on top. Find yourself involved in spiritual things more often. That's number one. Mitzvahs. And, num- mitzvahs. Yeah. and number two is realizing that the more you're involved in mitzvahs, so the soul is driving you, the soul is your driving force, the body eventually becomes refined to a place where no longer is it relevant the sins that were once done. A person trains themselves. You actually uh, like accomplish a training where no longer is the body looked at as an inhibitor, but even more, it's an enabler for the soul. The body enables the soul to do more mitzvahs. What is one of the proofs? There's a bunch of proofs. But it says when there's no bread, there's no Torah. If you're hungry and you're physical and you're unhealthy, it's very hard to focus and study Torah and live by the Torah. And he says, if there's no Torah, there's no bread. Because if you're not doing what God wants, you're not going to get the physical rewards of what God wants from us also. You're not going to take care of things. The fifth Chabad Rebbe once said, by the age of his bar mitzvah, I mean this is a tzaddik, this is a high level, he trained his entire body to behave in accordance with the code of Jewish law. Meaning to say, the way he went to the bathroom was holy. The way he scheduled times for eating, sleeping, and drinking was completely in sync with the code of Jewish law in every single way. Like, it was not a bad day, or <laughs> to say, where he was he was completely channeled, and he trained himself, so that I trained myself. And we all wish we could do such things, but it's, it's not necessarily expected, or able, able, are, we, are we able to do that? But the point is, is to understand that you don't have to sublimate the body or break the body. Maybe sublimate is the wrong word. You don't have to break the body, but you can change the body. You can change the tenor of the body to be able to serve the soul. And then the, then you see the preeminence of the body, because without the body, the soul wouldn't be able to do mitzvahs. Right? If, if, if you don't take care of your body, if you don't, if you're not healthy, if you're not mentally healthy, emotionally healthy, physiologically healthy, it becomes very hard to do mid-space. I got that question yeah. today from somebody. Yeah. Actually, she I said, feel, that, "Yeah, I feel like the thing with fasting though is like it it did not it did not, It's like a form of self denial. Realizing that you know, ins- instead of being hungry for something in this world, you're hungry for God. It mm-hmm. teaches you, mm-hmm. you know, you you, you could." You you can't fill yourself with with food and with like you know overeating over you know drinking you know and it it teaches you that you need God more than you need mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. But we only choose that at certain times, though, right? right. Yom Kippur, yeah. Yom Kippur, and there's also four other fast, minor fast days yeah. on the Jewish calendar, also. So no, absolutely, it it is like it's like on Yom Kippur we're considered like angels. And you know, we don't we don't we don't involve ourselves in the physical. You're absolutely right. Mm. So we were by refraining, we're able to focus our attention, our consciousness on a higher level to God, yeah. to Hashem. Yeah. Absolutely. So God chose the body for a very specific reason. He chose us and gave us a body that is there for his service, for him alone. It's an unbelievable thing to think about it that way. It's like, usually you think the soul. Soul, God, soul, God, soul, God. We always think that way. But the reality is, is that Hashem chose our body to be the ultimate vehicle for what He wants. How special is that? It's just so beautiful. That's why, you know, people always like tattoos are bad. Why are tattoos in Judaism bad? People said to me, you know, oh, we can't be buried in a Jewish cemetery. That's not true, number one. But the reason tattoos are bad is not because of like, we don't like symbolism or whatever it is, because God gave you a body as a gift. And it's his body that he loaned your soul to carry out his mission in this world. So the body is a gift from God, is our loan, it's like a lease of the ultimate gift to carry out a beautiful mission in this lifetime. And so for us to corrupt the body in any way, is to show the advantage of the body in employing it for a, a good purpose, for a body, a good purpose. There's a lot of discussions about like how we regard the body, and certain sages take very dichotomous views of how we relate to the body. The, 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 um, like Maimonides and a lot of the philosophers look to the body very negatively. Ultimately, they realize the body has its purpose, of course, but they looked at it as, as almost like a, uh, how do you say? A means to an end is not the end itself. You look at it as a means to an end. God wants us to do mitzvahs, that's the end. But the means to the end is the body. The Kabbalists look at it totally differently. The Kabbalists come to look at it and they say the body is the ultimate. The most spiritual, the more spiritual your rabbi is, the more he looks at the body is higher. The country, there's only Jews who can think this way. (laughs) But uh, but the more spiritual you are, the more you realize the greatness of the body, the greatness of the physical. And the greatness of the physical is not because it feels good or tastes good or looks good or smells good. It's because the body is like the ultimate vehicle for godliness, the ultimate conduit for Hashem. They're putting graffiti on the bodies more than ever. Yeah, it's really a a problem, absolutely. It's like uh, putting a bumper sticker on a Ferrari, right? That's what they say. (laughs) Right, right, right. That looks awful. There's an interesting story that um, the first Chabad Rebbe had a very wealthy follower, a very wealthy chassid who came to visit him. And he went and he traveled and he brought him a snuff box. You know, snuff was like smelling tobaccos from back in the day, old school-like thing. This is going back to over two hundred years ago. So that's what they did. They, you know, snuff, sniffed tobacco. And the author says, "I don't sniff tobacco." I don't they not chew on it. Too. They also true. So he says, "But the snuff is for the nose." Yeah. So he says, "The one air, the one of my it's five cents, the one of the five senses I have that doesn't have cravings. You want to also create a craving for? I Meaning that our eyes crave beautiful things, nice clothing, nice." <clears throat> Excuse me, nice art and beautiful people we crave those things through our vision yeah. we crave food clearly through our sense of taste we crave like music and sounds and pleasant things and nice words through our ears touch obviously we crave pleasant touch, but the nose doesn't have an inherent craving to it. You're never like you know I need to smell something really good unless you smell something bad, then you need to smell something good, but like you're never just like. I haven't smelled something good in a long time. Like, find me something good. But if you create the habit of sniffing tobacco, you would. So he says, the one orifice that doesn't have a craving, you're creating a craving for? It's like, think about it. It's a very interesting point. And it's saying that the body it should be trained for spiritual ideals, not for physical ideals. So the advantage in the choice of the body over the son, the father's love of the son is natural, is... is, is um, unconditional. But the choice, however, that is beyond comprehension is that God shows us of His free will. Hashem Himself shows by His free will something beyond comprehension. We don't understand why. We don't understand how. But this is the reason why. That the soul is a part of God and grasps Hashem through the soul. Like you asked the question, or oh, like that's how we grasp Hashem. But the entirety of Hashem is you are sons of Hashem, your God, and that a son is part of the Father. The soul's bond with God can be understood as the soul's advantage at source. But it's only a part of Hashem. The difference is, however, the body. The body has no advantage over anybody else's body. Like if you look at two people walking in this room right now and looking at them, you can't tell who's Jewish and who's not. I mean, unless, you know, you go by the nose size, but like other than that, <laughs> you can't really tell. Two people walk in, and you look at them. You're not like that body's a Jewish body. That body's a non-Jewish body. That's a Jewish nose. That's a Jewish eye. That's a Jewish face. That's a Jewish ta- halt. The Jews come in all shapes, sizes, and colors. Black Jews, white Jews, tan Jews, all colors. Of Jews, Jews are every color, shape, and size. And so are non-Jews. And if you look at it, you can't tell the difference. You can't tell them, unless, some, if I, without a yarmulke, without sitsis, without a beard, you wouldn't be able to tell. So what does it show us? There's no reason why the Jewish body is special. It's just like that of a Gentile, of a non-Jew. It has no distinct advantage. But God made a choice. What's the highest level of choice? When nothing has advantage over the other thing. People think free will. What is real free will? Real free will is not choosing something predicated on desire or advantage. True free will is taking two completely equal things, and deciding one over the other. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. Why does one person like one thing over another thing? Pure choice. So Hashem made a choice of the body over that of the soul. For a very distinct reason. That we don't necessarily understand. But we do understand it's paramount. It Meaning that the soul is part of Hashem. The soul spiritually makes sense. The body, spiritually, does not make sense. But the body, because it doesn't make sense, shows us that God shows it. God shows it. God shows the body of a, of, of a Jew. But it takes something to realize that. What does it take to realize that? The soul. The soul shows the body you're special. If the soul doesn't show the body it's special, the body just thinks it's like a non-Jew. Or an animal even. How many people we know behave like animals? The point is is to understand that the ch- God made a choice also for the soul, because the soul is God's chosen son, chosen child, so to say it. The son is the soul I'm sorry, the soul is the son of God. and prior to this descent of the soul, the choice of God is not discernible to the soul, but the soul comes down into a body. It's born into the physical world. And it's chosen to come down, and the soul is revealed by choice to connect with the body. So when the soul comes down, it's chosen for a specific mission in this lifetime. Each one of our souls has a specific mission to accomplish in this lifetime. And God chose that mission, and God chose that body, And God sent your soul down for that distinct purpose for which it was created and emanated for. And that's the reason why the soul was sent down into this world. And each of us have that mission to do. Each of us has that job to do to be able to complete the task the soul was set out to give before it was even born. And the body reveals to the soul that she, this special precious neshama, is more than a son. It's chosen by Hashem. Meaning to say, if you look at this whole thing, it's almost like inside out, outside in. You all, by doing mitzvahs, we're bringing to for, the forefront the preeminence of the soul because we're doing things that don't make sense necessarily. They're spiritual. But what are we doing them with? We're doing them with our bodies. Only when we have a body are we able to do those mitzvahs. Only when we have a body we're able to accomplish those things. And so the body goes and tells the soul, you're not just a godly robot. You're not a robot of God who says, like, Shabbos is now, keep Shabbos, only kosher. That's not, that's not soul. The body tells the soul you're special also. You have a special, distinct mission in this lifetime. You have a special distinct job. And therefore, we can understand in the future time the soul will be nourished by the body. Right now, you don't eat. God forbid, your soul and body detach from each other. Person dies, God forbid. Soul f- person Person becomes weak, the body is weakened, the soul goes away. God forbid. What does it show us? You have to eat, you have to sleep, you have to drink, you have to exercise, you have to feel good, you have to take care of yourself. You have to go to the doctor, get your physical, take care of your body. What if you neglect it? God forbid, passing away, person's death. So it shows us the body, right now, feeds the soul. If you could have a Jew their whole life, God forbid, doesn't learn Torah, mitzvahs, doesn't give Shabbos, doesn't give tzedakah, doesn't give charity, doesn't do a lot of mitzvahs, but they could live a whole life that way. They could live that way. Is it a, bad, is it a rewarding life? No. Is its quality of life not good? Not necessarily. No. But they could live that way. They never gave food for their soul. And this is the way God set it up right now. When Mashiach comes, the whole narrative is going to be flipped. You don't study Torah. You don't do mitzvahs. You don't do what God wants. You feel weak. You feel lack of energy. You feel unconnected. You feel discord. And God forbid, body and soul can detach. The whole relationship of body and soul is going to be flipped on its head. The soul is going to nurture the body, not the body nurture the soul. But it's interesting because right now, in the set we have right now, the template we have, The soul immediately gives life to the body. But we spend our whole lifetime taking care of the body, so the soul stays inside. Right? We nurse on our mommies. We get fed by our parents. We grow up and we'll get a job and get a life and get it together for ourselves to continue that life. Then we have our families. Then we have a family that we work for the bodies of our children and we feed them. And we continue this cycle of... Con- the minute our soul comes into a body, the soul gave life to the body. But now the body's in charge. The body is ruling the sh- is driving the shit. The whole lifetime of a Jew, we're trying to show that the soul is preeminent over a body. When Mashiach comes, it will be the opposite. Mashiach comes, the body is going to be preeminent. We say the body gives me my life. And then the soul needs to be nurtured. If I don't take care of my soul, God forbid, I could die going to be the opposite, the inverse relationship of what we have right now. So if you see, it says, when our job is the refining and purifying the body, the emphasis right now is revealing the soul's light for it to enter and permeate the body. In the future when Mashiach comes, the job will be of refinement of the body, will be complete. And the emphasis will be only on the revelation of Hashem, the essence of Hashem above light. The soul will sense her connection with God, Not because of her qualities, but because of God's essence. And the sensitivity coming from the soul given by the body, chosen by Hashem, will be openly revealed. So the soul sensitivity will be like, you know, like if you don't eat and your blood sugar goes down. And you're like, I'm I'm, tired, I'm weak, I'm hungry, I'm fetchy, I'm hangry. Right? The soul will get hangry for God. The soul will say, you're not feeding me. I feel constantly connected to Hashem. And what fosters that connection is my body's mitzvahs. And when I don't do those mitzvahs, God forbid, I'll become spiritually hungry. I'll become spiritually depleted. And I'll feel that lack of energy. I'll literally be palpable. I'll become angry. I'll become become angry and frustrated. So the above, the whole overall being of a Jew, soul within a body, is a service of Torah and mitzvahs. Then there will be a revealed bond between Israel and the Jewish people in every way. So again, the choice is by God's essence. The revelations and loftiness is as a sun. The characteristics is as a sun. Walking the pathways of goodness, togetherness of soul and body, and then the revelation of Hashem's essence, which is unbound by any concealment. So there's an interesting... Five minutes, good. Now bring it back to our parsha. In every Jew... There's two forces, the Yaakov and the Esau. This week's Parsha, we learn about the twins, their lives coming back together again. Yaakov, the Jew, whose name was changed to Israel, is the soul. Esau, who became the root of the Roman Western nations, is the body. Follow the ways of passions of the body. So we understand that the fine pathways of goodness and refinement come from Yaakov. And the coarser ways are from Esau. But we see that Yaakov and Esau, spoken about in this week's parsha, that Yaakov being the soul and Esau the body, both come from where? Isaac, Yitzchak, spiritual heights. They both come from the same father and the same mother. So the job of Yaakov is to reveal that Esau also contains the limitlessness of God. Our job is to refine the world to such an extent that Aesop even though he despised being the firstborn and the blessing he threw, cast it away, shows us that we can take such a coarseness, such a negative, seemingly, seemingly negative thing, and refine it and lift it up to the highest level. And thereby showing the relationship of body and soul together. So when we hear about the generations that come out in this week's Parsha, from Isaac, from Yitzchak, we understand that there is this constant relationship between soul and body. And which one has preeminence, in which circumstances, and it's our job to realize the preciousness of each one and the role of each one. All right, stop there. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Pleasure.